Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Today's episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor for my podcast, as well as the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling tickets for sports, music, and baseball. With just two taps on your phone, you can instantly buy SeatGeek tickets to an event, and you can enter that event just using your phone. No paper tickets. Drop your old ticket app. Use one that's built for 2016. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. And don't forget to check out my fairly new website, TheRinger.com, for the very best in sports, tech, and pop culture coverage. And don't forget about The Ringer Podcast Network, which features Keeping It 1600, The Watch, Channel 33, Shack House, and our Ringer shows for the NFL, NBA, and MLB. And finally, don't forget about my new television show, Any Given Wednesday, which runs every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. on HBO and reruns on HBO Now, HBO Go, and HBO On Demand. Hello, and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined, as always, by my fellow writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Michael. Hello. Hi. I have some Cleveland Indians related questions for you. Yeah, please fire away. So the Indians had their game against the Tigers rained out yesterday, and this could have implications for the AL wild card if the Tigers, who are now I think a game and a half back, wind up within a half a game, I think one way or another of the Orioles and Blue Jays. So Mm -hmm. if it does have these implications, it'll be made up on Monday and the Indians will have absolutely no skin in the game. Yeah. (laughs) And not only that, they will have to go to Detroit to make this up. So they're playing in Kansas City on Sunday, then they'll have to go to Detroit and then they'll go home in order to regroup for their their game on Thursday. So they're already short on starting pitchers because Danny Salazar is in the bullpen only. Right. For the playoffs, Corey Kluber might or might not be ready for the ALDS and Carlos Carrasco's out for the season. So I want to ask you a series of questions about how seriously the Indians should take this game. Okay. <laughs> One, do you stay overnight? It's a little less than three hours to drive from, from Cleveland to Detroit. It's a little less than an hour to fly. Do you stay overnight or do you go there the morning of and then fly right back home after the game? Yeah, I think I'd make it a day trip. Yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. Two, do you bring the whole team? <laughs> That's the thing. You have September expanded rosters, so you could play this like a spring training split squad game and just send, you know, maybe enough to make it respectable, have have enough of your A lineup in there that people don't get mad. Or you, well, maybe one of your questions is going to be, yeah. can you just consider forfeiting this game? I, that, I mean, I was going to ask that directly, but I feel like yeah. maybe we should. And I f- yeah. feel like somebody in the league office would would have had to have talked to Terry Francona or, or someone in the Indians brass, and like, you know, at least make this look good. Right. There is that obligation that you want to make it competitive, that the other teams in the wildcard race do not want you to throw this game, do not want you right. to forfeit this game. And the question is, how much of an obligation do you have to those teams? They're not your players. Who cares about those yeah. teams? And that we can we can skip over the rest of the specific questions because yeah. like this is this is really the crux of it, right? Yeah. So I mean, that day off before the postseason, who knows who can quantify exactly what it's worth? But if I were that team, I would not want to go to Detroit and play that game shortly before I have to start worrying about playing meaningful games. Forfeiting might be taking it too far. 
But if you have a 40-man roster and you can give your regulars that breather, I don't know that I would feel all that obligated to the other teams in the wildcard race to make this respectable. What have those teams done for you lately? Yeah, exactly. Why, why, why do I have to worry about those teams? And what makes it easier to make that decision, I think, is because the Indians have been so snake bit with their starting rotation. Like, yeah. you know, Trevor Bauer, I think right now is the, the listed starter for Sunday. I doubt he, I don't even know if I'd throw him out there because right now he's the game one starter for the for the division series so right. you know I, I think i'd leave kluber home and i think i'd leave uh salazar and bauer home like guys who you know you're absolutely not going to use i don't know if like kipnis or um or lindor if you even start them you definitely don't play them the whole game maybe you like put them in for a couple innings but i the thing i'd be worried about is pissing people off because it might come back to like, because that's going to be all anybody writes about. If you completely throw this game and then you lose in the division series, then this is just going to be, you know, you shouldn't need more motivation for, for a playoff series, but at the same time, I don't know if I'd want to take that chance. Yeah. I endorse any decision they make about this. Yeah, I think it would be awesome. If they want if to they just, just go through the motions, yeah. that's fine. That's the way that the weather worked and the scheduling worked and I don't see why they should impair their own hopes of winning this thing I agree. for other teams that are trying to beat them in would, every other way. I would support this on the grounds of it's fun to see teams violate norms. And yeah. also, like, I've been to the I don't want to be here professional functions, and <laughs> it would be fun to see a Major League Baseball team do an entire, essentially an entire road trip. Just like, screw this. I don't want to be here. Yeah. All right. Well, we have a couple guests later on in this episode. I, I did want to bring up one thing briefly we, before we move on. There was some front office news. The, the Cubs have extended their front office troika, Theo Epstein, Jed Hoyer, Jason McLeod. Theo Epstein reportedly is now the best paid executive in baseball by quite a bit. And the exact terms of the contract have not been disclosed, so people have been poking around. And it seems like it's somewhere in the neighborhood of five years and $50 million. It might be a little less than that as a base amount, and then there are some incentives that bring it up. So this is a huge increase over his previous contract. It's also a huge increase over the previous record contract, which was Andrew Friedman's with the Dodgers, and his was somewhere in the neighborhood of five years and $35 million. So... This is something like, on an annual basis, a 43% increase. So if a player were to best the previous high player's salary by that amount, we'd be talking about a player making about $49 million, close mm-hmm. to $50 million in a year. So this is huge, and, and this is something that people have been talking about for a while. Do executives deserve more money? How much should executives be paid? Epstein is now being paid basically as if he were a, a roughly league average MLB player or a little little worse than that. Mm-hmm. So we're now getting into the point where this contract really makes an impact on a team's payroll, a team's bottom line. The question is, how do you place a value on executive? If Theo Epstein is the Mike Trout of GMs or, or baseball operations presidents, how do you put a value on that? You'd think, sure. I mean, yeah. he's he turned around the Red Sox. He ended their drought. He is doing the best one possibly could to end the Cubs drought. So if he's the best in class, how much do you pay for the best in class, given that 
there's no real replacement level that we can point to with an executive. All right. That's I mean, that's sort of how I was going to view it. You know, if Mike Trout was a free agent tomorrow, you think you'd get $49 million a year? I mean, if he were signing a, a short-term contract, yes. But if he were going to max it out and go for the long deal, I don't think he'd get quite that much. How about a, how about a five-year five year deal? Because this is, you know, Theo is going to be 47. He's going to be like three years younger than Jeff Lunau is now. When... <laughs> yeah. I don't know if the uh, executive aging curve... <laughs> <laughs> works exactly the same right. way as the so player can, one does. Yeah, any any decrease in average annual value of a potential Trout reagent contract would be depressed at the back end because even he, well, I guess we don't know this for sure because he's Mike Trout, but assuming he plays by human rules, like he's not going to be that good when he's, or he's not going to be a 10-1 player when he's 35, but mm-hmm. Theo Epstein would still be, I would imagine, just as productive at 47 as he is at 42. So, like, Presumably, yeah. although, you know, we talked to John Hart earlier this week and we sort of asked him what the long-term benefit of a front office executive is, you know, once you've been there for a while and you've set up a system and you've hired a, a bunch of other people who could continue what you have started and maybe, you know, your thinking gets a little bit stale, you're in the same place for too long. So it's not really clear. Maybe there's an initial advantage to signing a Theo Epstein that is reduced once Theo has put a whole front office in place and a whole way of operating in place. So I don't know if he's there yet. I mean, he hasn't, you know, for all the talk about the great job he's done, you know, he hasn't won the title yet. So there's still, Mm -hmm. still that to work for. And he's still, you know, he's had Hoyer under him for a little while now, but you know, he's still sort of turning over the front office underneath him. So, you know, I feel pretty confident that at least through the end of this contract, you know, he'll be the same and maybe, Maybe for the next one after he's been in Chicago for 10 years, particularly if they win a title, he'll go do something else just to get that change of scenery that John Hart was talking about. But yeah, so let's say you get five prime years of Mike Tratt. I would pay $49 million a year for that. Yeah, I probably would too. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether this causes a a league-wide inflation. I wonder if there are other owners sort of gnashing their teeth when they see this contract for Theo Epstein because it means, oh no, now we'll suddenly actually have to start paying our front office employees too. And that's a way that small market teams have been able to compete is a team like the Rays, for instance, that can't afford expensive players has been able to afford an enormous front office and has signed scouts in countries that other teams have no presence in and have just almost a 20-person analytics staff. And you can keep adding and adding because these people are making normal person money. Well, not even. Like you're getting getting people with MBAs and, you know, graduate degrees in statistics or economics or whatever, and you're paying them $30,000, $40,000 a year. And I'm sorry, I have to go here, but we're talking about executive salaries. And I would be a bad communist if if I didn't talk about the data crunchers who are making, I don't even know who make, you know, bank teller money. (laughs) Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if this rising tide kind of lifts all boats and and now suddenly this is another way in which small market teams are priced out of talent. They can't get the the best executives. But it's really hard to say because we have no idea how deep the talent pool is. Maybe you can go get the 31st best GM available and he or she is is only slightly worse than the best one. It, we have no way to, to put a value on that really, which is perhaps one of the factors that has depressed those salaries to this point. Yeah. And there's uh, some mathematical concept that it works for the size of cities in the US, like the difference between consecutive ranks 
ranks of city population is the the fraction of those two ranks. So like mm-hmm. Los Angeles is half the size of New York, Chicago's two thirds the size of LA, Houston's three quarters is the size of Chicago. Yeah. And I, I would guess that it sort of works like that for general managers. Like there's a big gap, I think, between Theo and I don't know, I would probably say John Daniels might be number two, and there's a smaller gap between Daniels and whoever's number three. But once you get down like into the 20s, you know, I bet the difference between 20 and 21 is not that great. Right. And of course, if you can make one Jake Arrieta trade, then you pay for yourself exactly. or more than pay for yourself. All right. So later in this episode, we are going to be talking to a player. And I think this is something that we want to do from time to time on the show. We want to have a player on and just really get down in the weeds with that player and find out why they're good, how they succeed, how their game has evolved. So sometimes we'll be doing that with a high profile player. In this case, we're doing it with uh, Andrew Triggs, who is an Oakland A's starter this year. Who Sometimes. Uh, not, yeah. not even all the time. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Andrew Triggs kind of came out of nowhere. You may not even know Andrew Triggs. That's how low profile he was prior to this season. But he was a waiver claim in spring training, and he had a very successful season for someone who was a 27-year-old rookie and uh, hadn't pitched above double A except for one game prior to this year. So he is an interesting guy, interesting pitcher, so we are going to find out what makes him tick. But first, we're going to talk to one of our favorite people. He's a former writer for Saturday Night Live and The Office. He's the co-creator of Parks and Recreation and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He co-hosts, or maybe more like permanently guests on the podcast with Joe Posnanski, one of my favorite sports shows. And most recently, he's created the new sitcom The Good Place for NBC, which is four episodes into its first season. Of course, he also co-created legendary sports blog Fire Joe Morgan, which will be part of his introduction on sports podcasts till the end of time. And the name of this mystery man is is Michael Shore. Hey, Michael, how are you? Hi, guys. How are you? Very good. So uh, we're going to talk about the Red Sox. We're going to talk about your new show, The Good Place. We're going to talk about TV in general. I I guess we can start with some Boston sports since that's sort of your brand. I was uh, wondering, because I was listening to one of your recent podcast episodes, you were talking about athletes from your childhood that you are still very attached to. And so David Ortiz is retiring very soon, and I'm wondering if you have formed the same attachment to him that you would have to someone from your youth, because it's so easy to get attached to an athlete, even if the athlete isn't all that good when you are watching them in that sort of sweet spot of 8 to 12 years old or whenever it is. And so David Ortiz has come along after you reached adulthood, at least chronologically, but he has uh, been a, a huge figure in Boston sports. So do you have the same sort of attachment to someone like Ortiz who comes along after that period? I think it's a stronger attachment, honestly. Uh-huh. I mean, there there is this sort of childhood attachment to a Wade Boggs or a Dwight Evans or, you know, fill in the blank for whatever your team is. Uh, the guys that like when you first discovered the game, they are just your guys and they, you know, you imagine that you're them when you're in your backyard, that's one kind of attachment. But Red Sox fans and Boston sports fans in general, uh, well, actually, in this case, specifically Red Sox fans had a sort of arrested adolescence, Mm -hmm. uh, I would Mm -hmm. say, because of the championship drought. And so even though you're an adult, a fully grown man with like a mortgage and potentially a marriage and children and everything else that comes with adulthood, when the guy comes along who makes you literally just openly weep every time you think about him because of, <laughs> because of what he did 
and the circumstances in which he did it, that's a stronger bond. And with Ortiz, you know, it wasn't one time. That's the thing about him. And I'm sure people who aren't Red Sox fans are so sick of hearing about this stuff. And I apologize in advance, but it wasn't one thing. It wasn't one moment. It wasn't Bill Mazeroski in the 1960 World Series. It was over and over and over again in playoff series and World Series and late, you know, pennant drives. It, it, it's what he did, the number of times he did it and the, the circumstances he did it, it just boggles the mind. And to do it then, to do those things that many times for a team that had suffered as much as my favorite team had suffered, I just can't overstate what he's meant to fans of the team. I don't think, I really don't think maybe maybe Jeter for the Yankees, maybe, or, or maybe, you know, who knows what happens with the Giants, maybe Bumgarner with the Giants or something. But even so, like, you know, Jeter with the Yankees, they had already won a thousand World Series championships. So right. he just, what happened with Jeter was he fell into that long line of, of guys. He fell into the line of like Whitey Ford and Yogi Berra and Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio and all those guys. We didn't have any of those guys. We literally <laughs> didn't. For a hundred years, we had no none of those guys. And in fact, some of the biggest players in Red Sox history, Ted Williams and Yastrzemski and other guys like that, had kind of come up short in big moments at certain times. And so, you know, I, I honestly feel like there will never be an athlete who is more revered in any sport, in, in uh, at least in baseball, than Ortiz. I think he's got the hammerlock on that title for a very long time. There's something similar that, that I sort of went through when the, the Phillies won their World Series in 2008, you know, with instead of Ortiz, Cole Hamels or Chase Utley. It's a weird thing to go through and to experience as a grown man. And I had a heart like people who get it, get it. But people who don't get it, like I had a really hard time explaining it to. And have you had any more success sort of letting people into this without them thinking you're weird for growing attached to this guy who lives across the country who you have you know, no personal connection to other than you watch him play baseball? <laughs> well, I honestly don't really care. You know, there, I don't particularly care if another adult doesn't understand it. If they don't, I, I have a tremendous amount of empathy and in fact, even a little some jealousy uh, for people who don't have the same kind of emotional roller coaster relationship that I have with, with athletes and other people have with athletes. I have a lot of good friends who don't care at all about sports, and they seem like much more even-keeled people than I am. They usually are, yeah. Yeah, um, so I don't particularly care whether people get it or not. I, I will say this, you know, my son is now eight, and he's completely betrayed me and become a Dodger fan, and I get it. We live out here, and he goes to Dodger games all the time, and, and I, I, I do care if he gets it, and I, and I care a little bit for just paterfamilias reasons and a little bit just because I, I think he has it in him and I think he will be forever a giant sports fan. And I think that there is a benefit to that kind of attachment as long as it remains in the sort of on the on the, on the side of healthy and not in the side on the uh, doesn't tip over to unhealthy. But, you know, he I see him forming those attachments with Clayton Kershaw and with also some kind of random players like he's really into Andrew Tolls right now because Tolls came up and has hit, you know, pretty well for the Dodgers in the last 40 games. And there's something really fun about it. It's like a new dimension to your life where you get to experience a different kind of happiness. And as I've told him, you know, the Dodgers won the World Series in 88 and haven't won one since. And, they, and they've and they been like, you know, mediocre to good for a while now. 
But even if they didn't win a World Series until he turned 90 years old, he still wouldn't have the same championship drought feeling that that I had. Or I guess he would if he were 90, whatever. <laughs> you know, you get it. So I've, I've tried to impart unto him the kind of extreme joy and and sort of like lightness in my step that I felt when the Red Sox finally won. And I think he kind of gets it, at least in theory. It's a little bit of an intellectual idea, even though it's purely based in emotion. But he kind of gets it. And he, you know, like a lot of kids his age who are into sports, he's really into like, he's into superlatives. Who's the tallest? Who's the fastest? Who's the strongest? Who has the best arm? And the fact that the Red Sox had gone so long without winning a World Series, he kind of understands that. So if he... Long term, if he gets it, I think that is fine with me. I don't care, really care if anybody else does. And did Ortiz make you rethink Clutch? Because I'd imagine that if you could go back and ask 2004 Michael Shore, he would say that it's not a repeatable skill and that <laughs> certain guys might appear to be Clutch, but that's just because you have a lot of baseball players and by chance alone, some of them will happen to perform at those important moments. And then you watch David Ortiz be Clutch for 10 years, at least in the playoffs. Did that change your attitude at all? Yeah, not only would 2004 Mike Shore say all these things, he would say them so haughtily and arrogantly that you would end this podcast early. <laughs> he would cite VORP many times. <laughs> cite, he would cite a bunch of stats which have since proven to be not very reliable, <laughs> and he would do in a really condescending voice. Um, I Yeah, I mean, to some extent it did. I mean, you know, that we were always sort of deliberately heightened and kind of over the top on that site, and... You know, we mostly believed it, but we also partly knew that we were kind of just being jerks to be jerks. And 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 if you actually go back and read some of the posts on that site, you'll see that there are moments where we're like, look, we get it. There's a, there's a, there's value in scouting. There's value in all this stuff. Some hitters do tend to rise and like whatever. We did sort of begrudgingly admit even then that that was true. With Ortiz, I just think he's a phenomenal hitter, mostly, and phenomenal hitters do phenomenal things in in phenomenal ways and. So I don't know if it made me rethink Clutch, but I don't think that you can debate that he is Clutch, whether it's repeatable or not, whatever the science is or the math is. Uh, there's n you you can't deny. I, I think sometime in like 2006 or something or 2005 even, I can't remember exactly, the Red Sox ownership group in a, a yet another blatant attempt to kind of squeeze money and attention and ticket sales out of the team presented him with an award that was like the greatest clutch hitter in Red Sox history. And everybody kind of rolled their eyes a little bit of like, come on, guys, let's <laughs> like, that's not an award that needs to exist. But there's no doubt that he is that right. Like they were right. He is the greatest clutch hitter in the history of the franchise. And that has been proven over and over and over again in the most high leverage situations that any team is pos could possibly face. So you know, that Grand Slam against the Tigers alone, it wasn't even in the World Series, but they don't win that series and they don't win the World Series in 2013 without that moment. And that's about as clutch as it gets. I mean, they've been completely shut down by the pitching staff of the Tigers for two games. And with one swing of the bat, he changed the entire, um, you know, outcome of that series. So, yeah, I, I would I would take issue with haughty, arrogant, annoying 2004 Mike Shore, certainly. And that's... An interesting point because I feel like at some point we were all haughty and arrogant 2004 somewhere thereabouts because it was like we opened up the we being you know sort of numbers focused uh, baseball writers 
opened up the box and discovered all these new tools and thought, wow, everything's in here. How, you know, you're an idiot if you're not using these tools. And it took a long time to realize that not everything is in there. And so you get, you know, something like Keith Law turning into a scouting writer, which would have been pretty incredible, you know, in 2002 or whatever. So I don't know if you've been too busy writing and producing hit TV shows to sort of stay abreast of that. But I was wondering if you had any, any thoughts about, you know, how the art has changed since 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. Yeah, I have. You know, obviously I'm not actively engaged in writing about this stuff anymore. And frankly, with the sort of casualness with which we wrote that site, I'm not even sure you could say I was actively involved 15 years ago. But, uh, I, you know, we, we were overcorrecting. Uh, I'm using the same we that you're using here. We were overcorrecting because... You know, it's hard to remember now, but at the turn of the millennium, there was a real, you'd want to talk about arrogant. There was an incredible arrogance that was coming from the old school folks, the folks who said, "You, if you haven't, first of all, like if you haven't played the game, you can't talk about the game. You know nothing about the game. And then second of all, the people who were like, you're, you're a bunch of nerds with your computers and your mom's basement, all that kind of garbage. And and, you know, you you don't know anything about a player's heart or his will or his scrappiness or his grititude or whatever they, the words they used. And they, the, I, I've always felt like the condescension that came from the old school writers and analysts was far greater than the condescension that came from the new school people. And so at the beginning, in the middle of that sort of messy transition, we were everybody was sort of overcorrecting. And I've read, um, there was actually a piece on Slate about this recently. Josh Levin wrote a piece about it and about how, like, Rob Nyer was interviewed um, and said, sort of like, you know, I was, I didn't care about pitch framing. I thought pitch framing was stupid. Like, come on, like, you think umpires are so dumb that they can't tell that catchers are trying to fool me into, you know, calling a pitch that's four inches off the plate a strike? Like, you got to be out of your mind. And now he's done a 180 and he's like, oh, pitch framing's real. Like there are catchers who can add basically defensive runs saved over the course of many games by just being really good at framing pitches and knowing umpire tendencies and getting extra strikes for their pitchers. So, you know, everybody was a little bit over the top, but I think that the reason that we were over the top was because we were swimming decidedly upstream and we're being met with a lot of like dismissive kind of you guys are are nerds kind of writing from the old school writers and it required a course correction. And so I both sort of regret the tone a little uh, of how we went about it a little bit. And also I think maybe it was necessary just to kind of jolt the system. And by the way, I, I always give the same caveat. I take and the fire Joe Morgan guys that wrote that site with me take very little credit for any of this stuff. Like there were people who were writing about this stuff way before we were much more eloquently and much more scientifically. We were pretty uh, rank amateurs as we went about our business. We were mostly trying to be funny and goofy and silly, but I think that it, it, it was necessary to be a little bit over the top in order to get the sort of mainstream acceptance that all of these stats now have. I mean, we used to say that the real victory for something like Fire Joe Morgan or the stats movement in general would be if you watched a baseball game on Fox or, you know, NBC or whoever had it at the time, and you saw that instead of batting average and home runs and RBIs, you would see, you know, OPS and runs created per 27 outs or whatever. Like if those, if the basic stat lines or slash lines changed to things that were more accurate, more statistically minded, 
that would be the real victory. And that's basically happened now. Like OPS, which is an amazing stat, but it's better than batting average. That's now just a common thing that people just report on that. And I feel like no, none of us could have ever imagined that wins above replacement would be a thing that whoever Tim Kirkjian would casually toss around on ESPN broadcasts. So I think it, in order to get to that point, it was probably required that everybody went a little crazy back 15 years ago. And at the time, award voting was often sort of a referendum on your philosophical beliefs about baseball. And oh, yeah. if you supported a certain candidate, it was, you know, it was almost a, a political kind of debate. And we still all give our award picks at the end of the year. And if some crotchety sports writer from some small town paper we've never read before writes something weird about award votes, we all link to it and mock it. But I don't know if I have the same interest in that anymore. I'm I'm kind of just a live and let live kind of attitude when it comes to award voting now. Have you evolved in that area also? Yeah, I certainly don't have the same sort of anger that I used to have. And partly that's because it's gotten a lot better. I mean, the last truly egregious sort of major award that I can remember was Bartolo Colon's Cy Young when he was the only pitcher in the league, I think, who had won 20 games. And that there was a lot of hue and cry about that. But guys have won Cy Young awards with 13 wins. You know, Felix Hernandez won his and Zach Greinke won his with, I think, 16. He was like 16 and eight, maybe. Mike Trout probably should have four MVPs by now. He has one and he has three second place finishes, I think. And that's kind of annoying because he's been the, the best player in his league and probably all of baseball every year he's been in the league. But it's like, well, you know, all right. You want to give a guy a few bonus points because his team made the playoffs, whatever. Like, I can't, I just don't have the strength or energy or really interest to get that riled up about it, partly because giving awards, generally speaking, is a bad idea although it's a slightly better idea in something like sports that's at least somewhat quantifiable. But I don't ever, like, freak out. And and I think that's a combination of just, like, the more sort of mainstream acceptance of better statistics than existed 10 years ago and also the fact that those awards have generally kind of been going to the right people, you know? Like, I mean, Trout probably should win the MVP this year. He won't. It's going to be Mookie Betts or Josh Donaldson or Jose Altuve or someone but that's not a bad choice, you know, like it's not a, it's not pure math. It's not pure science. And so I think it's fair if you want to say, look, all these guys had great years. This guy came up big in big situations for his team. He led the team down the stretch. They got into the playoffs. Mike Trout's team is abysmal. They stink. No, they've been irrelevant the whole year. Give it to someone else. That's fine. I, 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 I can't, find it within myself to really get angry about stuff like that anymore. So the playoffs are about to begin. And if you look at the records of the AL division leaders, they're all right in the same range, just a, a win or two apart from each other. But if you look at what stats say the records should be, if you look at base runs record or third order record or any of those ways of trying to account for you know a team's underlying performance and what it says about its quality... The Red Sox are kind of in a class of their own in the American League, at yeah. least something like, I don't know, seven, eight, close to 10 wins better than the, the next best AL team. So you've watched the team this year. Do you get that sense that it's kind of this sleeping giant that's maybe underperformed record-wise, but is actually the team to beat? Or in other words, why are they not as clutch as the Rangers? <laughs> <laughs> You're really just trying to bait me now, aren't you? <laughs> well, 
You know, the team in, in some ways is sort of similar to the 2004 team. The 2004 team was sort of underperforming into July. Then, you know, Alex Rodriguez got plunked and started jawing at the Red Sox pitcher and Veritek came out and they got into a huge fight and they came back and won that game. And then they went on to make the playoffs and, and steamroll the Yankees after being down 3-0 and win the World Series. And everybody retroactively said that was the turning point. That was the game where they, you know, the Red Sox caught fire. It really wasn't. They went 5-5 five and five in the 10 games after that. No one remembers that because it's not convenient for the narrative, but they did. They went 5-5. Five and five. And then suddenly they just started playing like crazy and winning like crazy. And the reason that they did that is because they had always been a really great team, a, a historically good offensive team specifically, and they had Schilling and Pedro and and Keith Folk and whatever. And so eventually, like, they sort of started playing. It sort of started evening out. They they regressed upward to what how they should be, the, the percentage of games they should be winning, they started to win. And in some level, that's what's happened with this team. They, you know, they, they lost last night, but before that, they'd won 11 in a row. And they're still underperforming a lot of their metrics and stuff in terms of how many wins they should have. So in that sense, yeah, I think they are. I think they are the best team in the American League. They have, they still have question marks with their pitching. Like David Price had a chance to rede- slightly redeem what's been for him a kind of bad season last night by clinching the division once and for all in Yankee Stadium, which would have, I think, given him a real boost. And he kind of laid an egg and gave up a bunch of home runs to a bunch of imaginary Yankee players. Uh, who whose names you won't recognize. And he has, for him, again, had a fairly mediocre year. He's pitched a lot better in the second half than the first half. And they have big questions in their starting pitching and a couple questions in their bullpen. So, you know, I think they're the best team in the American League. I by no means think they're a shoe-in to even make the World Series. I think that, you know, the Rangers, it doesn't really matter right now that the Rangers have only scored eight more runs than they've let up and should be a kind of a 500 team. That doesn't matter. That's the situation. Now they're going to maybe go into the playoffs with the best record to have home field. And in the playoffs, as we all know, anything can happen. So I I think that if if the Red Sox literally didn't lose a game through the playoffs and the World Series, it wouldn't be that surprising based on how they played recently and what their, you know, offenses, their offenses are basically a hundred runs better than the next best offense in the American League. But also if they lost in the first round to like a wildcard team, and that also wouldn't be surprising. They're, they're not the Cubs. The Cubs, I think the Cubs not making the World Series would surprise people, despite how good the Nationals are, despite the fact that some of the other teams in the National League have, you know, the Giants, if they make... The Giants make the playoffs, they, they start Bumgarner in game one. And if you start Bumgarner in game one in the playoffs, anything can happen. It does. It's not like that in the American League. The Indians have been killed by injuries. Their best pitchers are out. The Rangers are a, sort of a fluky team. None of the, the wildcard teams that might make it from the AL East, Baltimore and Toronto, are the Red Sox have just beaten the stuffing out of them recently. So it they're they're the best team i don't think you could argue that overall they're the best team in the american league but it also wouldn't surprise me at all if they exited early so you know i mean i know this is this is really brilliant analysis isn't it basically (laughs) what i'm saying is anything can happen which uh i don't think you needed me to tell you but i don't think they're the juggernaut that they're that their um win-loss record or their recent play or their you know run differential would suggest they are yeah, we're all reduced to pretty simplistic analysis when yeah, <laughs> it's well, time that's, for the postseason. Which... That's the thing, man. That's baseball. It's like you, there's very few times like the 1998 Yankees 
and the you know our our one example right it's like well they're gonna win the world series there's no no one can beat them and then they did very easily but then you get the mariners the mariners that won 116 games or whatever it was and like goodbye second round goodbye like yeah it's boring but it's true yeah that's why it's useful this time of year to just be able to flip a switch and just spout complete bullshit to sound more certain i think that's the way to do it yeah (laughs) yeah the way to do it is to is to wait until it's over and then say that you totally predicted what happened (laughs) (laughs) so if we can transition to tv you you know your sports background and loyalties seep into your tv shows at times whether it was with the law firm name and Parks and Rec that was just composed of sabermetric stats or <laughs> in the Good Place pilot, if you kind of freeze frame it when uh, all the ways that you can get to the Good Place are being listed, you see a lot of sports references in the fine print there. So that has been a part of your shows, but not a big part of your shows. So why have you not an explicitly sports-related show? Or, you know, I don't know if you've seen the the new Fox show pitch, but I'm curious about what a version of that, you know, made by Michael Shore would look like or or what a baseball show made by you would look like. So is it just that you want to branch out and do other things or is it that sports shows are challenging? Uh, it's probably a little of both. I mean, I did see Pitch and I loved it. I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. It made me cry um, yeah. <laughs> when the little girls are holding up the signs and, uh, you know, saying like, I'm next. And like, I teared up, uh, legitimately teared up. And I thought the whole pilot was great. I thought the the cast was really good. I thought they did a pretty good job of do, of something that a lot of sports shows and movies don't do, which is they, they kind of got it right. They kind of like shot it the right way and edited it the right way to make you feel like you were really on that field. I think the best version of that is in um, Bull Durham. When Kevin Costner comes to the plate, there's a handheld camera that sort of walks up with him and it gets right in his face and he's kind of muttering to himself, you know, mm-hmm. at different yeah, times, yeah. like, come on, give me the, give me the meat, give me the meat, give me the hook, whatever he's saying. And it really made you feel like you were walking on the field with him. And I think Pitch did something similar. They managed to make a woman standing in the middle of a stadium with, you know, 45,000 people or more realistically, 3,000 people and then a bunch of computer-generated people <laughs> that were inserted into the seats. Uh, they made it feel like intimate and scary and like she was alone out there, which, you know, obviously is the point of the story in more ways than one. And I I really loved it. I thought it was really well done, really well executed. And as far as I go, I don't know. I just have never had... I Writing is a is a strange thing and you kind of just have to chase the idea that occurs to you that you feel the most passionately about and for whatever reason I've never had it honestly never had an idea for a show set in the world of sports at all like I've never even been like oh maybe that's the way to do it maybe you could do this and this and this and it just I don't know maybe I'm too close to it maybe (laughs) maybe I maybe I love baseball too much to ever uh, get a clear sort of objective view on how to portray it I don't know can you even do that in a half hour sitcom? Because it just, you know, talking to the showrunner and Ben talked to their baseball consultant, it's just very involved and, and seems very labor intensive and expensive. I, I don't know if you can do that on the, the schedule or constraints of a, a network sitcom. It's certainly possible that you could not. And also inherently, Major League Baseball is a dramatic idea. And uh, the the comedy version, like Bull Durham, is the minor leagues. And that doesn't mean there haven't been good comedies about the major leagues. Like, you know, in fact, Major League, there's one. There's, you know. Or the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, it's certainly, <laughs> yeah, the, there are real life examples of professional comedies 
uh, involving Major League Baseball. But the, I, I think that it's a, it's probably a combination of things. I anything can be done. Like you, these days, especially, you know, we have a lot of visual effects in our show, and you know, we're doing things in our show pretty cheaply that were literally impossible. Forget about expensive, even ten or fifteen years ago. Like that kind of stuff gets better every year and cheaper every year. So I think I don't think you couldn't do it. I just don't know from a storytelling point of view. I think it might be tricky. That certainly I can almost tell you definitively. It's it would be tricky to come up with a a half hour comedy about like Major League Baseball or something. And then there's also you know the the a huge boost that pitch got is they got MLB to sign off on the idea, right? So mm-hmm. they got use of the Padre Stadium and the MLB logos and all of that stuff. They got the rights to use those, which is not easy to get. And partly the reason they did it is because the idea is very heartwarming and and sort of casts Major League Baseball and professional sports in a positive light. And if you wanted to do a comedy version of that, you'd certainly want to be making fun of a lot of stuff about baseball and about a specific team and about, you know, uh, about the world of professional sports. And if you wanted to make fun of it, the chances are fairly high that Major League Baseball would not give you those rights. And that's why, for example, in any given Sunday, uh, which was, you know, obviously a pretty harsh look at the world of professional football, it wasn't the New York Giants and the Baltimore Ravens and the, you know, Denver Broncos. It was the like New York Wolverines or something. And the and the and their uniforms looked insane. It looked like a, a weird parody of like the USFL or something because they had run afoul of the NFL and the NFL didn't give them the rights to use any of their logos. So it's like a, there's all these sort of tertiary things that would make it tricky to do a comedy, I think. Have you noticed any parallels between running a show and running a sports franchise, whether it's as a GM or as a manager? I, you know, I'm curious because I wonder whether it would be more like a baseball team or maybe more like a basketball team or a football team where chemistry plays a, a larger role. Parks and Rec was noted for the fact that everyone seemed to like each other and that kind of came through on the screen. And so that sort of thing, do you just go and get the actor with the best resume or do you try to figure out how a certain cast will play together? Do you then try to write to that actor's strengths? You have Ted Danson, who is basically the Mike Trout of TV, and then you have to put together a team around him and around Kristen Bell. And, and Michael has cited your quote uh, about how, you know, the first 10 episodes or the first season of a comedy show, no one knows what they're doing and you just kind of have to learn from it and figure it out as you go on. So have you noted parallels as you've gone from show to show? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know what it's like to run a, a professional sports franchise, obviously, but I can tell you that I tend to use a lot of sports sort of metaphors in thinking about how to run a show. Bill Belichick is fond of saying is the motto is do your job. And I find that do your job is an incredibly good um, motto for everyone to use on a TV show. And what it means to me is like, there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of sort of stuff that you can't control, right? You can't totally control who watches the show. You can't control how critics are going to respond to it. You can't control the way that like, you know, the number of people who watch it on Hulu as opposed to watch it live or whatever, if you get caught up in that stuff, it's hard to do your job. And so I do feel like if everyone just does his or her job, the writers just focus on writing, the actors focus on acting, the costume department focuses on making great costumes, that things tend to move a lot slower or smoothly. 
more smoothly. I also am very fond of using basketball analogies. And on Parks and Rec, I like to think of the team as a basketball team. And Amy Poehler was like the best point guard in the world. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in comedy shows, you can run into situations where there are people with big egos who sort of feel like I'm the star of this show. I want all the jokes. I want to be funny. No one else can be funny. And Amy, instead of doing that, was basically, you know, Chris Paul. She was she would she could score at will when she wanted to. But she was also just as happy. In fact, maybe happier setting up other people to score. And her sort of unselfish play and her ability to kind of like take joy and pride and pleasure in being in a scene with Chris Pratt or Aziz or Aubrey Plaza or whoever, Nick Offerman, and allowing them to shine and not feeling like, wait, I'm supposed to be the funny one here. <laughs> that made all the difference with that cast, I think. And, and it's a very atypical thing for the star of a network TV show to have that feeling. So... You know, every show is different. Every cast is different. But sports analogies and metaphors are very apt, I think, in many cases, especially when you're talking about team chemistry or or like the way in which the, the whole is can can be greater than the sum of its parts if everybody sort of focuses and and is unselfish in the way that they go about their jobs. You know, we care about performance analysis and objective measures of performance. And one of the ironies is that when I was at Baseball Prospectus, we were talking about how teams should evaluate themselves that way, but we were not really evaluating ourselves that way. We were not <laughs> optimizing anything for search engines. We were not crunching traffic data and trying to figure out how we should attract more readers. We were just kind of doing the work and hoping that people would like it. And at Grantland and at The Ringer, I really haven't known how many people are reading my stuff. I I don't really want to know how, how many people. And so is that how it works with you and TV shows? Are you looking at ratings and plus three and plus seven and who is watching this show and how can I cater to them? Or are you just kind of in a bubble and putting it out there and saying, I, I hope the world likes it? I'm mostly the latter. Um, mm-hmm. Although the future of the show is in some part, obviously, dependent on how many people are watching the show. So it's hard not to get that data and look at it and try to try to like, you know, read the tea leaves. But on the other hand, that data would only be useful to me if there was some way that I could make it change. And I really can't. Like, I I don't know that there's anything to be gleaned from one giant number of this many million people watched your show. You know, if you showed me objective data that said that this kind of story or this joke was universally loved and made a bunch of people tune into the show next week, the week after, because they loved it so much, I might think to myself, okay, I should do more jokes like that or something. But that's just not the way it works. Like, you know, there's, we've shot all the episodes, they're all done. <laughs> like, so to some extent, it would be foolish of me to try to learn any lessons from just big raw numbers, because they don't, I don't really think people watch TV that way. They're not like, it's not a constant focus group where minute by minute you're getting information about what they like and what they don't like. It's just sort of like, is the show connecting or not? Are people telling their friends about it? Maybe if the show goes to season two, there would be some way to sort of analyze that information and say like, okay, the people tend to like it when we go more in this direction. But generally speaking, I think you just kind of have to make the best thing that you can do the best job you can literally just do your job and try to make the best show you can and just hope that it connects because I think you can get lost in the weeds real fast if you start trying to change course every two seconds based on what you think people like or don't like. I think that might be a huge mistake. So trying not to do that. 
All right. Well, if you are still a person who watches TV when it airs, you can find <laughs> The Good Place on Thursday nights on NBC at 8.30 Eastern. And if not, you can find it on Hulu. You can also find Michael on Twitter at Ken Tremendous. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for having me. All right. So we will be right back with Andrew Triggs of the Oakland A's. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. If you love golf, I wanted you to check out the golf podcast that we have on the Ringer Podcast Network. It is called Shack House, and it's presented by Callaway, and it stars Jeff Shackelford and my longtime friend, Joe House, who has little credentials other than the fact that he absolutely loves golf, and he's willing to argue with Shackelford about anything. But people love it. There's not a lot of golf podcasts out there. If you love golf, if you care about the tournaments, you care about PGA, you want to hear golfers and media people interviewed who care about golf, check it out. Shack House, presented by Callaway, only on the Ringer Podcast Network. And now, back to your podcast. Okay, so as I record this, I'm looking at a list of pitchers who have thrown at least 50 innings and made at least five starts this season, sorted by deserved run average, which is a baseball prospectus stat that looks at every aspect of a pitcher's performance and tries to assess how effective he was and there are 201 names on this list, ranked from best to worst. And number 41 on the list is Oakland A's pitcher Andrew Triggs. Now, maybe 41st place doesn't sound like the sexiest stat, but for context, that puts him directly above Jacob deGrom, Kenta Maeda, and Rick Porcello. So now it's starting to sound sexier. And when you consider that Triggs is a rookie and a 19th round draft pick, who turned 27 before opening day and whose highest level experience prior to this season was one AAA game, it's all the more impressive. So now that I have summed up his whole life in this intro, I will actually welcome him to the show. Andrew, hey, how are you? Good afternoon, guys. Thanks for having me. Lucky 41. I hadn't heard that stat, so thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. So I'm curious, you know, you started this season in the Orioles organization, and then I believe on your birthday – you were claimed by the A's. So it has to be jarring to switch organizations in the middle of spring training, particularly because I'm sure you were hoping to have a role with the Orioles this year. So what was going through your head when you found out that you were moving across the country? Right. Well, I mean, I knew I was on waivers, so I was hopeful that I'd get another opportunity elsewhere. And uh, really, you're elated. You're thrilled that someone uh, was going to roll the dice and take a chance on you. But yeah, you're mostly just so excited that the process of moving out of your apartment in Sarasota, driving your car 13 hours to Nashville, leaving your car at home, and then hopping on a flight all on the same day back to Arizona before getting up the next morning at, you know, six o'clock. You're not really worrying about that as much. So it was really just excitement and uh, ready to get back to work. And, you know, I, I didn't have the spring that I wanted to in Sarasota. So it was kind of like a nice clean slate moment. And so do you hear anything from the team that claims you? Is it just sort of, you know, we you hear about the transaction, then you move? Or do you talk to someone with the team who tells you something about why they wanted you? Or I'm curious because, you know, I, I wonder whether the fact that it was the A's made you happy in some sense in that this is a team that at least has a history of trying guys who maybe don't fit the, the typical profile. You know, they are the team that gave Pat Vendetti a chance finally last year. And so, you know, you throw for an, an unusual arm angle, but you at least only use one arm. So if they're willing to right. try Vendetti, then, you know, maybe they'd be willing to try Triggs. Sure. And I, I knew uh, kind of the, the makeup of the 40-man roster at that point. So I knew that there would likely be some opportunities. And the thing that excited me the most is just based on how the claim list was going to go, 
I think they were the ones that had first crack at me. So that was, you know, a a good little confidence boost. But at the end of the day, you still have to go out there and perform. And yeah, I I really just was thrilled to have an opportunity no matter where that was going to be. But yeah, it was exciting. And I don't really remember the sequence of the phone calls, but I do know I heard from someone in the Orioles front office and then later on someone with the A's. And then from that point, it was really just about you know, the the really sexy stuff about figuring out flights and how many boxes do I need in my car and what am I going to leave behind and who's going to take this and all that kind of stuff. So, And you didn't have to wait too long for your, your first call up. You were up by the end of April. So, you know, I know that's a, a big moment for, for any baseball player. You know, what was what was that like? How did you find out? You know, what was that like getting to the major league club? I mean, it, it was a thrill. I mean, it really was. And for me, it was a little bit bizarre because even if, you know, you haven't been in the big league before, you've probably been in big league camp. And even if you haven't been there, you've probably been a, a minor league guy they've brought over for a day or two. But for me, it was everybody in that clubhouse was was a new face. I mean, I hadn't been there. I went straight to minor league camp when I got claimed. Um, they were already doing their first round of cuts. And so they optioned me and pretty much said, you know, go get your innings and work on some stuff, which, you know, I was more than happy uh, to do. But that was a little bit bizarre was going in there and really not knowing a single person um, and having any familiarity whatsoever. But it was exciting, and I was really fortunate to uh, get in there on that first day. I think it was April 25th. So I got to pitch that first night through the eights, and, um, you know, you didn't have to sit out there and stew in the bullpen and, you know, think about it all that much. So really just to sort of get out the gate first time out was, was fantastic. Yeah, and you were a college guy, so, you know, waiting until 27 to get that call up is probably a little less nerve-wracking than, you know, if you had been in the minor league since you were 18. But, you know, were you worried that this day would never come? Or if, and even if it did, like, that you'd get called up and sent back down without getting a real chance to stick? Yeah, the, the latter never really crossed my mind as much. But for me, I never really doubted my ability to pitch in the big leagues and get guys out. It was more about was I going to get that opportunity. And so I had to go through three organizations before I finally got that chance. And so for me, I mean, it was really just a huge weight off the shoulders just to at least get there. You get that one inning and then I knew it was going to be a quick trip because they were swapping out starters. So they were going to carry an eight man bullpen for a few days. So I knew my stay wasn't going to be long. So going back down, it was, you know, I felt confident, you know, having thrown well and, you know, I'll be at one inning that if I went back down and took care of business in AAA, that there would be more opportunities down the road. And, and, you know, I was fortunate to, uh, for that to be the case. So you said that you had confidence in your own abilities, but does there come a point at which you start to question whether your organization has confidence in your abilities? Because, you know, you look at your stats last year, which I'm sure the A's were looking at when they picked you up and, you have a, a 1.03 ERA in 61 innings in AA with a 6-plus strikeout-to-walk ratio and never even got a call to AAA. So, I mean, at that point, do you start to think, I better start to, to look elsewhere because there's not much more I could do to prove that I deserve a shot? Right. No, not necessarily. And in all fairness, you know, after last year, that was really the year that gave me the most boost. But in, in fairness to uh, to that organization, I mean, they were the ones that put me on the 40-man anyway um, mm-hmm. in November ahead of the Rule 5 draft. So I knew that they saw something. I knew they recognized something. And it just turned out that in, in spring, they needed a roster spot when they uh, when they signed a free agent. And so that's how that came to be. But uh, certainly earlier in careers, I mean, one of the toughest things, at least for me at the lower levels, is when you think you're throwing really, really well. And then, you know, a guy who might throw a heck of a lot harder than you or, you know, a guy who might not be performing as well as that you think you are, you see one or two or three of those guys advance past you. And that's really the stuff where you kind of got to keep from swimming in your own head all that much. But but for me, I mean, as far as last year, I, I knew that once it hit August, 
maybe the first or the second week of August. I knew I was going into a protection year, so really my goal was was to go out there and, and put up the best numbers that I possibly could because I knew that was, you know, as a guy that doesn't throw all that hard, that was the only way that I was going to get an opportunity or open some eyes. And, you know, once you got to the, the major leagues, you've bounced around from role to role. You've been a multi-inning guy in the bullpen. You've been, you know, a spot starter, swing man. Is it difficult to prepare for a fluid role uh, as opposed to being, you know, I know I'm going to get the eighth inning tonight or I know I'm going to start every, you know, once every six days? I mean, I, I think so. I, I really enjoyed when I was getting opportunity to start, you know, every every fifth day you get your opportunity. It's obviously a lot easier to prepare uh, mentally. It's nice to sort of have that uh, have that break for a couple of days and really all of your work happens before the game starts. But, I mean, pitching is pitching, and you're still worrying about making good pitches. You're still looking at video of the same hitters, and you might be going in for one-plus. You might be going in for three-plus out of the bullpen. And so, you know, for me, the mindset wasn't all that different, but I definitely did enjoy the opportunity to start. And, you know, down the line, that would obviously be a thrill. But any opportunity to pitch in the big leagues is a, is a great one. So preparation-wise, it was a little bit different. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you kind of go into that flighter fight mentality and once you walk between the lines, I mean, it's just about getting guys out. So it's not, uh, you know, sitting in the bullpen thinking, oh, man, am I going to have to throw more than, you know, three innings tonight? Or, okay, we got this kind of a lead. I'm probably not going to see the field tonight. And then all of a sudden they rack out four runs. You're really not too worried about that. You're just, at least in my case, I don't know about other guys, you're, you're pretty much locked in from inning one to inning nine. And you had only made one start in the minors. So how did they approach you about transitioning to the rotation? This is obviously kind of the the opposite of the way that, that most guys' careers go. You know, they maybe they start out in the rotation and then they eventually move to the, the bullpen. You don't see a ton of guys go the other way, you know, at least once they get some way sure. into their career and they already make the majors. So, you know, how did they... Uh, approach this with you and and how did you approach starting differently from your work in the bullpen right well well, the first one honestly was just born out of uh, a a series of weird transactions because I had one start and I knew I was really just coming up for that one day against the Angels and I think that was May or June I'm not sure the exact date but that was at home and they had just optioned a starter down who would have been lined up for that day but he had to be down in the minor leagues for those 10 days barring an injury I forget exactly what it was, but he would have been the no-brainer choice to bring back up, but he couldn't be brought up. I don't think they were quite ready to bring up someone else who might have been able to start in that role because he might not have been on the 40-man. And so for me, it was kind of like, look, we're heading into an off day. Let's bring him up and uh, give him a few innings. So I went three innings in that one, and that was that was not a, hey, you're going to be a starter now. That was, hey, we need someone to you know pitch at the beginning of the game. But then later on, I – it was also kind of born out of necessity where I think someone was hurt and they pretty much said, well, you know, you've been kind of stretched out. You're rested enough that it wouldn't be too much for you to go on this day and uh, we'll see how it goes. So that one, I think I went four innings at home against the Orioles and, you know, it was reasonably efficient. I had one fourth inning that didn't go like I wanted it to, but otherwise it was a pretty sharp outing. And then it kind of just was, okay, let's try it again. And that one went reasonably well. And then it's like, well, let's try it again. And so that's, that's sort of how it went. I I really didn't change my approach all that much. I was a little bit more diligent when it came to looking at video and and understanding hitters and, and seeing lineups, because, you know, you don't want to run out of your bag of tricks when you go a second time through the order, even a third time. So in terms of video preparation, mental preparation, that was a little bit different, but my routine was was largely unchanged as far as how I warmed up. I didn't break out my windup. I still threw out of the stretch the entire time. And so altogether, I wouldn't say there were that many 
changes or differences between the, the two for me was kind of just, you know, let's see how far you can go. And, and you know, thankfully, they, they stuck with me and gave me that opportunity. One reason maybe that you might not have gotten that chance to start throughout your minor league career is that you've got a very low arm slot and guys like guys who throw sidearm, you know, it's said that they have trouble pitching to opposite handed batters. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into all that and, you know, you specifically, but this is sort of a, a difficult question probably to answer, but like, you know, how did you wind up throwing like that apart from 20 years of muscle memory? Yeah, I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't really have a good answer for it. Uh, I, I look at, family has pictures of you know me pitching as a kid in little league and or 12 and under whatever it was and um it was definitely a lower arm slot i don't think it was quite as far across my body i have a theory as to how i got far across my body and involves a shoulder injury i had in college and when i was coming off of the injury i I didn't have surgery but i was throwing and it just didn't feel quite right but when i stepped farther across it kind of protected my shoulder a little bit more it wasn't as you know vulnerable and left out in the open so that's my theory as to how i got so far across my body but in terms of the slot that's just kind of always been there so i had a had a pitching coach years ago who said you know a caveman picks up a rock to throw it a rabbit to eat and that's your arm slot so I, I think that's just it's sort of natural and innate and you can you know manipulate it to go well below what your natural slot is or go well above it but for me that's where I have my best feel and my best command and I'm not really sure how it started but you know it is uh it is what it is and as Michael just alluded to that is often the vulnerability of someone who throws from that angle and that's why you often see if guys do make it to the majors with that kind of angle often they are sort of slotted into the the situational role and there are some guys who've done it, you know, guys like Justin Masterson, maybe, but it's pretty rare because, you know, lefties get a good look at you. And yet, if you look at the numbers, you did a, a great job against lefties in double A last year, and you held your own against them in the majors this year, you even struck out lefties more often than you did righties. So what is the key to neutralizing opposite handed hitters, even when you're coming from that angle? Right. And the, the strikeout thing was the thing that threw me for a loop when I finally took a look <laughs> at my splits. But yeah, uh, if we got a bigger sample size. Maybe that would have normalized <laughs> a little bit right. more. But, uh, you know, for me, the biggest thing was I, I've never really had a great change up or a good feel for one. And so I kind of canned that when I went to the bullpen full time coming into the minor leagues. But um, the big turning point for me is I started throwing you know, a cutter, hybrid cutter slider. I don't know what you want to call it because my primary breaking ball i hold it like a curveball but for my arm slot it's kind of a a sweeping slider just the way that it comes out of my hand but when i started introducing the the cutter really as a pitch that you know i can throw obviously in on the hands to a lefty to back up with you know the glove side sinker that i can throw you have you know both sides of the plate you're cutting it and obviously halliday's the 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 einstein of, of pitchers doing that effectively i'm not nearly as sharp when it comes to repeating those but I think really the cutter was a big turning point between 2014 and 2015 for me. So it was something I started working on in spring training before last season and uh, kind of took that into the season. It really helped me a lot. And then this year, you know, working with vote uh, whenever I threw to him, especially in a, in a starting capacity, I did mix in some changeups, but being able to backdoor the cutter earlier in counts or maybe to get back in sort of a, a lazy cutter, just to drop in there essentially in terms of speed, it has the same effect as a changeup but it is going towards them versus away from them. So it's not necessarily a swing and miss pitch when you throw it on that side of the plate, but uh, it does have the same speed effect. And then you can go hard in and then kind of soft cutter away. So that was really the turning point for me as far as being able to get lefties out. And that was something that I was aware of hugely coming off my 2014 season. So I've kind of always been cognizant of the numbers and 
in what they mean because you kind of have to be unless unless you throw 100 miles an hour, you, you're going to need numbers in your favor if you want any opportunity to get a chance to succeed. And so I knew that was a, a huge vulnerability to go along with the the conclusion a lot of people are going to draw based on just how you throw. So that was uh, that was a conscious effort I made in spring training in 2015, and uh, thankfully it's developed into I wouldn't say a dominant pitch by any means, but it definitely allows the other two to play up more. Yeah, and and you were with Kansas City before that, of course. But I've I've read and heard that Baltimore has been kind of anti-cutter in the past. They've taken the cutter away from some guys, or they haven't wanted them to throw it early on. So have the changes that you have made are they kind of you know related to organizational approach at all? Whether it's with Kansas City or Baltimore or Oakland or is it all just sort of stuff you were tinkering with or maybe a, a pitching coach you came across here or there that happened to make a suggestion? No, I, I've been really fortunate. You know, the organizations I've been in and the pitching coaches that I've had, you know, maybe it's a function of being a 23-year-old, fifth-year senior when you get drafted. But yeah. for the most part, uh, I've been left alone, more or less. You know, if I go to a pitching coach and I say, hey, I want to do this or do that, they'll absolutely help you out. And I've had some really, really good ones. But, you know, for the most part, no one said, you can't do this or you should really do that. Instead, it was more, I'd take the initiative and say, hey, I'm working on this. What do you think? And I said, hey, that's great. But maybe you think about this or that too. But we can all obviously work on, you know, pitch A, but pitch B might be a good thing for you to think about too. So, um, you know, I, I never had anybody put a foot down and say, uh, you know, that's not a great pitch for you. And I, I think uh, that's partly open-mindedness and partly, you know, I signed for a thousand bucks in the 19th round as a 23-year-old. So they pretty yeah. much said, all right, well, you know, <laughs> You're here, do what you got to do. And, um, you know, I was kind of fortunate in my case to kind of have been left alone. And you mentioned Stephen Vogt a couple minutes ago. And, you know, you're coming up, you're starting for the first time. Your repertoire is expanding. You're facing major league hitters regularly. Um, You know, I was in the the Ace Clubhouse earlier this summer doing a story on Rich Hill. And I just noticed how much of a, like, before the game, how much uh, Vogt, uh, takes sort of like a coaching role, uh, particularly with young pitchers. And, you know, what has he been like to throw to? And, you know, his, how has he helped you, um, you know, develop as you're adjusting to, to starting in the big leagues? No, he, he's been absolutely fantastic. I mean, I don't, I don't think I have a fraction of the success that I did, um, this year in fleeting moments if, if he weren't the guy behind the dish. And the biggest thing for me is, you know, I'll do a lot of, video work on my own too to prepare for starts and for for outings but um you know he's really good about slowing it down and and you know if I start saying okay well with this guy really like this kind of an approach and he'll say look slow it down do what you do when it comes to it you know back against the wall we're going to work with this and this is a good out pitch but he's really been incredible about walking me through games and if you look at the success that a lot of the other younger guys have had I think it's doing no small part to him either. And so, and Bruce Maxwell is a, a young guy who's been up here too that I play with in Nashville some also. And I think he's, uh, he's done a really solid job of taking to that role as well. But yeah, voters, voter has been invaluable, at least for me personally. I'm curious, uh, you know, because you've gone back and forth between the bullpen and the rotation and you have five pitches you could break out, which is not something most relievers can say. I know that. Earlier this spring or this winter, there was a story about how Zach Britton was impressed with your sinker, and that's that's a nice thing to hear probably from the master of the sinker. So how much did your pitch selection change when you were going from one role to the next? Did you vary your pitches much more in the rotation? And 
And I wonder whether you have an opinion on Britain, you know, because he has become a, a Cy Young contender this season. And a lot of people have said, well, he's, he's a reliever. You know, he couldn't make it in the rotation. And that's why he is in his current role. But then I read something from him recently, an interview he did with David Lorella from Fangraphs, where he said, you know, his sinker's gotten so much better since he went to the bullpen that if he were to go back to the rotation now, he thinks he could actually hack it there, just kind of using the sinker over and over again. So do you have any thoughts on, on either of those things? Yeah, for me, I think, um, yeah, one time through as a reliever, if you're just going two innings or so. For me, the biggest thing that changed was not so much pitch selection, but location of pitches. So, you know, let's say I face a lefty first time through and I know I'm only throwing two innings. I'm not going to see him again. I'll probably be, you know, more aggressive just going sinker away, front hip cutter, breaking ball in the dirt, you know, sinker away versus, you know, next time through the order, you know, we might throw three sinkers in on his hands to begin with. And if you get into a 2-1 count, you know, who cares? We've showed him in there and now you can just dump breaking balls in away. So it, for me, it really wasn't the, the selection of pitches. It was the location of them that was different for me mm-hmm. from, you know, one time through the order, the next relieving to starting. Uh, and then, you know, Zach Britton sinker is, is easily the best pitch in the game. I feel like. So uh, he was actually, I, I reported early to Sarasota this patch spring. So I got there right after the new year, because obviously it was, it was relatively new. The clubhouse was for me because I'd just been in Bowie the entire year. So I figured it would be good. Um, you know, first year on the 40 man, first year big league camp for me ever to get down there early and get settled. So there were actually four of us that were working out uh, and, and Zach was one of them. So he and I were, were catch partners for those first few weeks. And uh, he was, you know, kind enough to take it gentle on me when we were playing catch. He didn't really let it eat, but for a handful of times, but I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And you know, as far as Cy Young versus, you know, MVP reliever started all of that, um, you know, I, I don't really have an opinion. I just know that he's he's pretty special in what he does. And, and I know he works at it. I know he works really hard. And, and watching his bullpen this spring was really one of the most impressive light bulb moments for me was just how good of command he had of it. I mean, it was unbelievable. He'd go up there and he would pound 10 glove side sinkers in a row. And um, they would all wind up at the knees. I mean, it was it was just truly impressive. So he's worked for what he's done this year. And it's been uh, it's been fun to watch. We've talked about statistical oddities throughout the past 20 minutes or so, but there might not be a weirder one than the A's losing in 21 of your first 22 uh, big league appearances. <laughs> when did, like, I could see that going for like, oh, you know, we lose every time I pitch and just not even noticing for like maybe a week or two. Like when did this ever become, become a thing in the, in the clubhouse or, you know, something that, that you started to get freaked out about a little bit? Honestly, I didn't know it until uh, until someone mentioned it to me when it was like one in twenty one. Yeah, no, I, I was I was aware of it, and I remember the first, the only one before uh, you know the start in St. Louis. But it was I got to pitch the ninth, I think, at home against um, Texas when we were up by seven runs or something like that, and that was just fun for me to kind of get back into something of a similar role that I'd had in the minor leagues, which is pitching the last inning of the game when the team actually wins. So. That was fun, but um, yeah, no, it never really, it never really came up. It was just, uh, you know, some bad luck, and um, you know, by definition, my role was going into the game when we needed someone to throw multiple innings, and generally, when you need someone to throw multiple innings, it's when, you know, the first several haven't gone your way, and so by definition, you're not going to win a ton of those games, um, aside from a comeback here or there. So, no, it, honestly, 
it really didn't occur to me all that much, but it is a pretty wacky stat, that's for sure. So I asked my pals at Pitch Info to run some numbers on your release point this season, and it turns out that of the 700-plus pitchers who've thrown a pitch in the big leagues this season, your average release point is the second farthest from the center of the mound. And the guy with the farthest, Donnie Hart, is a lefty, so you are the farthest for a righty. That's a combination of your arm angle and where you're standing on the rubber. So you're definitely giving guys a different look. Do you think that that helps you... More when you come out of the pen and guys haven't seen you and you're coming from a much different spot than the previous pitcher was, do they get used to it if you're throwing five, six innings and they're getting to see it over and over again? Is there more of an element of surprise in one role or the other? Maybe, but, you know, in my mind, honestly, these the hitters here are so good yeah. that, you know, they see two or three pitches and it's not like it's something absolutely wacky where I'm scraping my knuckles on the bottom. <laughs> of uh of the mound or the top of the mound Uh, my opinion is i think they're adjusting within two or three pitches because i don't think it's that dramatic for me my best success is going to be when my my movement's the best and my location is the best so i i haven't had too many moments where you know i've made bad pitches and got ugly swings on it so maybe that's about stuff more than anything um but for me that my conclusion is that you know, they see you throw a couple times and you can see them, you know, tracking you as they're standing and watching you warm up as a reliever. I mean, these hitters are fantastic and really good. They're they're going to make the adjustment really quick. So maybe there is an edge coming in as a reliever, but, you know, reliever or starter, if you make good pitches and, and you keep the guessing game going in your advantage, then I think you're going to have success. So I, I don't think it's as much of an edge as I would have expected or, or maybe an outside observer would have expected because I've seen guys within two or three pitches, boom, they're on it after seeing you a couple of times. You know, you've got 50-odd uh, big league innings under your belt now, you know, full season. How do you feel about it? You know, how is Major League Baseball through through one year of your career? Yeah, well, obviously I'm frustrated with how, um, you know, things unfolded with the back uh, the back issue popping up. But, um, you know, this if you told me that this is how the year would have wound up, you know, aside from, you know, the injury cutting things short here, Obviously, I would have been thrilled, um, and I think there's some fantastic stuff to build off of. But it's been it's been really a thrill. You know, I've been really, really fortunate to have gotten an opportunity, and it's been a lot more fun than I would have expected. But the the I don't want to say the game slows down because I feel like that's one of those baseball cliches that people may overuse. But it you really it really does normalize after a few times out. You know, after facing a, maybe your first superstar, whether that's you know, Cabrera or Pujols or someone along those lines, it really does start to normalize. And you realize that, you know, sometimes you make a really good pitch and they're going to hammer it. And sometimes you make a bad pitch and they're going to, you know, pop it up in foul territory. So, you know, it's been a thrill and it's definitely given me some confidence moving forward. But at the end of the day, it's going to be about performance and, you know, who's ready on February, whatever it is, when everybody starts showing up in uh, Florida and Arizona. Is one of your goals for the 2017 season to get Daniel Mangdon to shave his mustache. You know, what's the the <laughs> opinion of his mustache around the A's clubhouse? I think he he does what he does. I think it's pretty fantastic. And, and I just like to marvel at it on some days because some days it's better than others. Some days he really gets the wax just so and it looks like Captain Hook and it's just perfect. And some days it's, you know, not quite as sharp. But um, I think it's great if he wants to show up without it in spring. I don't think anybody's going to bat an eye. And if he wants to keep letting it eat, then that's that's fantastic, too. So, no, I have no opinion on the mustache. I think it's great. All right. Well, in retrospect, I'm sure the Orioles wish they'd held on to you, but you've been a, a good find for Oakland. And 
And it's fun for numbers guys like us. You've been a, a favorite of Jeff Sullivan's at Fangraphs for a while. And, you know, we look at minor league leaderboards and we see someone dominating at that level and we think, well, you know, why isn't he getting a shot? Will he ever get a shot? And sometimes they never do. Sometimes they do. And it turns out that whatever worked against minor league hitters didn't work so well against major league hitters. But you're yet another data point that uh, proves that success in the minors is you know, usually a pretty good indication that maybe you can get big league batters out too. So congrats on the success this season and good luck next year. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be a data point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. That'll do it for today. Thanks to Michael Shore. Thanks to Andrew Triggs. Thanks, as always, to Michael Bauman. And thanks to you, the listener. Enjoy the last weekend of regular season baseball. We'll be back with a new episode of the Ringer MLB show on Tuesday. 